Isaiah 14, verse 1. When the Lord will have compassion on Jacob, and again choose Israel, and settle them in their own land, then strangers will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. The peoples will take them along and bring them to their place, and the house of Israel will possess them as an inheritance in the land of the Lord, as male servants and female servants. And they will take their captors captive, and they will rule over their oppressors. And it will be in the day when the Lord gives you rest from your pain and turmoil and harsh service in which you have been enslaved, that you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon and say how the oppressor has ceased, how fury has ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, which used to strike the peoples in fury with unceasing strokes, which subdued the nations in anger with unrestrained persecution. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth into shouts of joy. Even the cypress trees rejoice over you and the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since you were laid low, no tree cutter comes up against us. Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead, all the leaders of the earth. It raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones. And they will all respond and say to you, Even you have been made weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp and the music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you. And worms are your covering. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook nations, who made the world like a wilderness and overthrew its cities, who did not allow his prisoners to go home? Father, as we open up yet another passage from the prophet Isaiah, I pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding. And I pray, Father, for the uh, the gifts of the Spirit to be poured out on us this morning as we sit and listen. And we, we come to hear your teaching, Lord. I pray the words of truth would be spoken, Father. And uh, these would not be my words, but yours, Father. I pray that you would uh, support and strengthen and give us foundation by Your Word, Lord, and in Jesus Christ. And Holy Spirit, we invite and ask You to speak to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we spent the last couple of Sundays talking about the golden lampstand. And how the lampstand, Isaiah 11, verse 2, talks about those seven attributes of the Holy Spirit. And how the lampstand itself is a picture of the Holy Spirit. An amazing picture lighting that inner area of the holy place. And lighting up, as we talked about, the table of showbread, representative of the Word, and and lighting up the altar of incense, representative of prayer, lighting up the whole place of ministry for the priests, lighting up the veil, representative of Jesus Himself, the way to mercy, the way to the Father. And how that lampstand not only represents the Holy Spirit of the living God, but the lampstand also is represented by, or the Spirit is in and with, the church in the world today. 
We're told in Revelation chapter 1, chapter 2, that Jesus is the one who is walking among the lampstands. And the lampstand then is a picture of the Spirit in the church and the function of the church today. These things are what we greatly need, what we talked about in chapter 11, verse 2, the presence of the Lord and the attributes of the Spirit of the Lord, wisdom and understanding, right? Counsel and strength, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. These are absolutely critical to followers of Jesus in these last days. And as we looked at those things and and thought about them, I began to, to realize, especially over this last week, that being a light... Taking on that that call of being a lampstand in a dark world, being a witness, puts you at risk. It sets you against the real powers of this age and the powers of this world. You automatically, by accepting Jesus and walking in the light, you automatically are against the darkness. And you automatically, by lifestyle and by choices, are called to push back against the darkness. Several things hit the news this last week. So many I don't even have time to talk about all of them. But there were a few that I I just jotted down some notes about. Maybe you heard about this. A Wisconsin high school is in the middle of a free speech debate after they apologized for publishing a student essay opposing gay families who adopt children. School officials called the essay a form of bullying and disrespect. Now listen to this. The column ran on the editorial page of the Shawano High School student newspaper. It was part of an op-ed featuring a student supporting gay families who adopt children and a student opposed to the idea of gay families who adopt children. So it was just two different students giving two different perspectives on an op-ed page in their school newspaper. Um, The student who opposed gay adoption cited Bible passages that called homosexuality and sin punishable by death. Quote, if one is a practicing Christian, Jesus states in the Bible that homosexuality is a detestable act and sin which makes adopting wrong for homosexuals because you will be raising the child in a sin environment, the student wrote. The school district profusely apologized after a gay couple who has a child at the school complained. The school district did not comply with a request to read the entire essay. So now opposition to gay adoption is equated with bullying. That's one article. Here's another one. Pagan mom challenges Bible giveaway at North Carolina school. A pagan mother's challenge to the distribution of donated Bibles at a local school has prompted the Buncombe County Board of Education to reevaluate its policies regarding religious texts. Ginger Stravelli, who practices witchcraft, a form of paganism, said she was upset when her 12-year-old son came home from North Windy Ridge Intermediate School with a Bible. The Gideons had delivered several boxes of the sacred books to the school office. Those dangerous Gideons. (laughs) The staff allowed, listen to this, the staff allowed interested students to stop by and pick them up. So the boxes were delivered by the Gideons, set in the office, and kids who wanted the Bible could pick one up and take it home. That's all it was. They weren't passed out in the classrooms. They weren't forced on anybody. And this, this witch's son decided he wanted to pick up a Bible and brought it home. Stravelli said schools should not be giving out one religion's materials and not another's. According to Stravelli, the principal assured her the school would make available religious texts donated by any group. But when Stravelli showed up at the school with pagan spell books, she was turned away. (laughs) 
Buncombe County school officials are currently reviewing relevant policies and practices with school board attorneys. The district announced in a written statement, during this review period, no school in the system will be accepting donations of materials that could be viewed as advocating a particular religion or belief. Third article. This is interesting to me. In fact, I had a great, boy, about an hour-long conversation with my son about this yesterday. My son, Corey, who is very into computers and very up on what's happening. And I just said, hey, Corey, have you heard about what happened with Mega Uploads? Maybe some of you are aware Mega Uploads is a file-sharing site that the federal government shut down on Thursday. Immediately upon that site being shut down, another site was attacked by a group called Anonymous. Anybody heard of Anonymous before? It's kind of a funny question, actually. Have you, have you heard of Anonymous? No, because they're anonymous, right? But yeah, a few of you have, have heard of this group. Let me read this to you. The Justice Department's website went down on Thursday as a result of a large-scale coordinated hacking by a group known in the cyber world as Anonymous, a loosely organized hacktivist group now aligned with the Occupy movement. So if you're into the Occupy movement, maybe you'll uh, appreciate the group Anonymous. Um, their actions were in response to the Fed shutting down the web-sharing site Mega Upload for piracy and copyright infringement to the tune of $500 million. Now, there's all kinds of debate. I mean, this whole Internet thing, especially where sin is concerned, is one big, vast, difficult area to navigate. What is right? What is wrong? What is sin? What is not? But here's the real problem. The reason it is difficult to navigate what is right and wrong on the web is because our world has become so relativistic, it's difficult to navigate in life unless you have some kind of a standard by which to navigate. If the world is all relative, then what's right for you is right for you, what's right for me is right for me, and if they clash, oh well. And the problem is, and we're seeing this more and more, your right and my right are going to continue to clash. Who's to say that your standard is any better than my standard? Or my standard is better than yours? Unless we have a standard that is higher than mankind. A standard that comes from our Creator who does know what's right and wrong, who does know what's best for His created beings. That's the only standard worth following. We have that in the Word of God. And believers, you have that by the Spirit of God speaking into your lives. But if you have no standard, you know, who's who's to say? This is interesting, though. This group, Anonymous, and this is why I mention this to you, they released a post claiming responsibility for the cyber attack, which is as follows. And you can hear this. It's a, it's a uh, computer voice. And the computer voice comes on and says, and I quote, We are Anonymous. We are Legion. Now, see, I figured you'd respond that way. If you don't know who Legion is, it's not we are a Legion, as in a, a large number of, you know, Hackers, it's We Are Legion. And if you're not aware of it, that is the name that the demons gave themselves that Jesus cast out and sent into the pigs when they rushed off the cliff and became the first Bay of Pigs. Remember that story. It's bacon soup, you know. So, we are anonymous, we are legion, we do not forgive, we do not forget, expect us. So these things are going on in our world so much more. And you know, it's, it's almost, it's really not fair as a pastor and as a, as a Bible teacher because I know on any given day all I have to do is open up the news and I'll have four or five great examples of, of demonic activity in the world. If you choose to be a light in this dark place, it will put you at risk. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, however, Paul says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood 
but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Let's be sure we know who we fight. Let's keep our eyes, well, let's keep our eyes on Jesus, but let's be aware of our real enemy. Our real enemy is not anonymous. Our real enemy is not the homosexual community. Our real enemy is not the pagan moms who are upset when their kids bring Bibles home. Our real enemy are the dark forces driving all of these things. And that's where our attack has to take place, in the spiritual realm. Peter says in 1 Peter 5.8, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, Isaiah 14, why are we talking about all of this? Well, last week, or a week ago Wednesday night, we entered what has been called the Book of Burdens. The Book of Burdens in Isaiah. After the Book of Emmanuel, that wonderful book from chapter 7 through 12, now in chapter 13 through chapter 23, we're in the Book of Burdens. Nine different burdens or woes that the prophet Isaiah has to speak. The, God, the Lord God gives these to Isaiah. He has to say these things, and they are a heavy weight. They are a burden for him. In fact, back in chapter 13, verse 1, it says, The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amoth saw. And that word oracle, masa in the Hebrew, is burden. The burden concerning Babylon. These are weighty issues. These are heavy things. The idea behind masa, behind a burden, is to, to, to hoist up a heavy load. And sometimes it feels that way. Sometimes trying to be a lampstand in this world is, feels like we're trying to hoist up a heavy load. It feels like a burden. It need not if our eyes are in the right place. But Isaiah, he, he lifts up these burdens. He shares these burdens. They're going to be to nine different nations surrounding Israel. And one burden will be toward Jerusalem itself. Nine different prophetic words that Isaiah brings. Now, today's teaching is somewhat of a burden to me. Because we need to talk about something that I don't like to talk about. I prefer really not to talk about. I'd rather just avoid altogether. In fact, it's not really a something, it's a someone. Because the subject of the passage before us, Isaiah chapter 14, is not an irrelevant historical threat. Nor is this threat vague or nameless. I think back to, to 9-11. When 9-11 happened and, and once the initial shock wore off, the country was asking, everybody was asking, okay, we know it was a terrorist act, but who? Who was behind it? Who did this? There was this vague, nameless threat. Until the president came out on January 29th, and, and he said, 2002, and he called out Al-Qaeda by name. For many people, that was the first time they'd ever really heard of Al-Qaeda. Who this terrorist group was, he began to describe them. Then he went on to describe what he called the axis of evil. And he got into all kinds of trouble for it. How dare you call a nation an axis of evil? Well, God does often. And so once we began to know the name, then we didn't have to worry about or be afraid of the name so much. At least we knew where this was coming from and we knew where the attack needed to go. Well, our enemy has a name, a very clear name in Scripture. He has a past, he has a purpose, and he is a person. He is not a nameless, vague threat. He is not a force out there, just vague and, and causing people influencing. He is a real being, an actual being, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world, Revelation 12, verse 9 tells us. The devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. But wait, 
you might say, isn't this prophecy directed against the king of Babylon? I mean, that's what I see written there. First of all, chapter 13, take up this this oracle, this burden against Babylon itself. And then chapter 14, take this taunt up against the king of Babylon. And I would say, yes, this is directed at the king of Babylon. But I would ask you this very simple question, which one? There are a lot of kings over Babylon in its day, in its age. Would this be directed at Nebuchadnezzar? Or perhaps evil Merodach? Or his cousin evil Knievel? Would it, be, would it be against Nabonidus? Or his foolish son Belshazzar? Which king is called out in this taunt in Isaiah chapter 14? Well, I don't even have to tell you. Let's just let the text explain it to us. First of all, understand this. It is a taunt. Chapter 14 is a taunt. Verse 4. Take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. Taunt. The word is mashal in the Hebrew. Not mishal. Mashal. We have a mashal here at the bridge. It's mashal. Different thing. She's not a taunt to her husband. Mashal. It is a proverb. A proverb. In fact, you may recall, we studied the book of the Mishle. The book of Proverbs. A Mishle. A mashal. Same root word. And a taunt, a mashal, it's, it's a proverb, it's a mishle, or it's a similitude that it is, it is something spoken that can refer to something else or pictures or describes something else. Same word used in the mishle when we read in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 5, a wise man will hear an increase in learning. A man of understanding will acquire wise counsel to understand a proverb, that is a mashal, and a figure the words of the wise and their riddles. What we're talking about here, this taunt that they are to take up, gang, it is a similitude. It speaks enigmatically. That is, it speaks in such a way that there are deeper truths to be mined. It's not just the surface that we're talking about. On the surface, take up a taunt against the king of Babylon, who would be, a hundred years after Isaiah prophesied this, who would be wiped out. Take up a a taunt against the king of Babylon. But there are deeper truths to mind than simply that immediate taunt. In fact, it's similar to what Jesus said to the apostles when they came to him, Matthew 13, verse 10. The disciples came and said to Jesus, Why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has, shall be taken away from him. God speaks often in mashals, or in proverbs, or in parables. Why? Because God is looking for faith. And a parable requires faith to understand the deeper meaning. So this taunt requires faith to understand what is really involved, what's really being said here in Isaiah chapter 14. Secondly, not only is it a taunt, but it is given in a time of peace. A taunt that's given in a time of peace. When does this begin? Look back at verse 1 again. When the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and choose again Israel and settle them in their own land, then strangers will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. Hold on there a second. He says when the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and Israel. So this is not talking about when Judah, when Judah returns from Babylonian captivity. This is talking about when God returns all of the Jewish people back to their land. Alright? 
Verse 2, the peoples will take along with them and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel will possess them as an inheritance in the land of the Lord as male servants and female servants. They will take their captives captive and they will rule over their oppressors. And it will be in the day when the Lord gives you rest from your pain, from your turmoil and harsh service in which you have been enslaved, that you will take up this taunt. When? In a time of rest. When Israel no longer has pain. When Israel is no longer the target of turmoil and harsh service and attack. When the Jewish people are no longer under any kind of oppression. Has that ever happened? Not yet. Not yet. It's that time when you will take up the taunt against the king of Babylon. This describes a time yet future. A time that is coming, I believe, very soon when the people of Israel will all be settled and at rest in their land. People of Israel, many are back in the land right now. We're seeing prophecy begin to be unfolded right before our very eyes in this last generation as the people of Israel have been coming back in droves to the land. However, they are not at rest. The land is not at rest. This is not a time of peace. Not yet. The taunt comes when the greatest enemy of Israel... Listen to me, the greatest enemy of Israel in all of history is no longer a threat. Who is that great enemy? It is the devil. It is Satan. All the anti-Semitism of history is satanically driven. That's where it comes from. There is no reason to hate Jewish people other than a demonic drive, a satanic push. And this is at a time when this enemy is no longer a threat. Now again, the prophecy in chapter 14 here does have short-term application. 100 years after this prophecy was spoken, the Medes poured into Babylon at night, right under the walls via dried-up water channels. They came into the city, and they were in the city, and had conquered it before the city even knew what was going on. It was a remarkable military achievement. And the Lord through Isaiah even named them as a conquering force. A hundred years early, just look over chapter 13, verse 17. Where Isaiah prophesied, Behold, I am going to stir up the Medes against them. Who will not value silver or take pleasure in gold? Their bows will mow down the young men. They will not even have compassion on the fruit of the womb, nor will their eyes pity children. So, amazing. A hundred years before it happened, Isaiah said it was going to happen. Isaiah dies, and after that, it happened. Exactly as he said he would, even naming the conquering people. The proud, foolish, partying king at the time, Belshazzar, was up in the palace. We've talked about that story several times. It's, It's actually a... If it wasn't so tragic, it would be hilarious. It's kind of a dark comedy if you want to read it that way. But he was cut down that very night, and the glory of Babylon fell that very night to the Medes. But that's not what's being talked about in Isaiah 14. That's just the surface. Let's go deeper. Verse 5. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, which used to strike the peoples in fury with unceasing strokes which subdued the nations in anger with unrestrained persecution. But listen to the world without Babylon. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. And they break forth into shouts of joy. Even the cypress trees rejoice over you and the cedars of Lebanon saying, since you were laid low, no tree cutter comes up against us. 
And speaking of the whole earth, note that it's the whole earth is at rest. It's not just the region. It's not just Israel. It's not just the area in the Middle East there around Babylon. It's the whole earth that is at rest. This is speaking, gang, of that time of the millennial kingdom when the whole earth will once again be at rest. When there will be peace on the planet. A God-brought peace. A peace that is brought about, by the way, by righteousness and absolutes. A day when there will be no question as to what is right and what is wrong. Everything will be clearly understood in that great day. Now, we could be talking about one dastardly dude who's taken down the king of Babylon. We could be just referencing rulers and kings and people who were squashed by historical Babylon and glad to see the king of Babylon get his come downance. <laughs> but here's where things really start to take an interesting turn. This prophetic taunt to be given in a time of peace reveals a telling past. A telling past. Now, go back to chapter 13, verse 6. Because here's the context. Here's the context. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. Bible students, what is the day of the Lord? Say it out loud. I'm hearing superstition. <laughs> the tribulation. The day of the Lord in Scripture is the tribulation. It is the day, and Scripture defines it very clearly, when God will pour out His wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. When He has had it, when it's done, and judgment begins to fall on planet Earth. The day of the Lord. Throughout the Hebrew Scriptures it's called that. It's also called the time of Jacob's distress. Because it is a time that will be of great distress for the Jewish people. But it is a time when the whole entire world is being judged. The day of the Lord, it will come about as destruction from the Almighty. Go over to verse 9, chapter 13. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and He will exterminate its sinners from it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises. The moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish, note this, I will punish the world for its evil. And the wicked for their iniquity, I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble, the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of His burning anger. The context of the destruction of Babylon and the taunt. The context of the destruction is the day of the Lord. The taunt is at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. And, and the Bible is very clear about this. But that's a future event. And didn't you say that this is, reveals a telling past? And it does. The telling past of Isaiah 14 goes back to a day before Isaiah. In fact, it goes back to a day before Israel was in the land. It goes back to a day before mankind populated the earth. This goes back to a day before creation. You see, along with the prophecy of Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14 gives a remarkable description of the fall of the power behind the king of Babylon, who is the devil and Satan. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. Those are two places you can go in Scripture if you want a description of where Satan came from. How did it happen? Who is he really? What's his background? We have it given to us. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 
28. And it's a remarkable description. But why, why is he compared to the king of Babylon here? Why does God cho- choose the king of Babylon as kind of the superficial picture for the real picture, the reality of the devil, of Satan himself? Why the king of Babylon? Because Babylon is Satan's city. And we talked about this at length on Wednesday night, a week ago Wednesday. It's mentioned over 300 times in the Bible. In the same way that God attaches His name to Jerusalem and says, Jerusalem is the city on which I put my name. Jerusalem is like the apple of my eye. Jerusalem is my holy city, the Lord says. In the same way, Satan has chosen Babylon as his focus city, as his capital. And I personally believe it will be the center of satanic activity in the tribulation. I think literal Babylon. Literal Babylon? Yeah, it's in Iraq. It's being rebuilt. It's being built up. The Ishtar Gate that used to lead into Babylon has already been rebuilt. They have a mock-up statue of the Tower of Babel, which they intend to build at some point. It is being rebuilt. It will be a viable capital city for Antichrist and the forces of evil in that day. Now, a quick read through chapter 16 and 17 and 18 in the book of Revelation tells us what will happen to this city of Babylon. Revelation 14, verse 8 says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Babylon the great, Revelation 16, 19, was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. That's Babylon. Babylon's going down. What about her king? The real king of Babylon. Three things to note about him. Number one, power. Number one, power. Power. He bore a great light. Verse 11. Your pomp and the music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you. This doesn't sound real comfortable to me. And worms are your covering. How you have fallen from heaven. Now note this, O star of the morning, son of the dawn, you have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. Star of the morning, son of the dawn. The King James Version translates verse 12, Lucifer, the son of morning. The Hebrew here is Kalel ben Shakar. Kalel ben Shakar means literally, note this, light bearer, son of the dawn. Note that. Light bearer, son of the dawn. The name given to Satan. Now, I want you to keep your finger there and turn over to Ezekiel 28. We'll do a little jumping back and forth here. Ezekiel's a couple books to your right. Ezekiel 28. Verse 11. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre. Okay, wait a minute. Now this is talking about the king of Tyre and that was the king of Babylon. You're saying this is all Satan? Exactly. And I'll explain why when we get to Ezekiel 28 in our Bible study. But for now, just understand this is talking about Satan. Thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. 
Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis lazuli. Some of your Bibles may translate that the sapphire. But the lapis lazuli is not a sapphire. It's, it's a blue stone, but it's an opaque blue stone that has little striations of gold flecks in the stone itself. It's a very costly stone. It's a beautiful stone. And it was the stone used to cover the Ishtar Gate, which was that great blue gate, perhaps you've seen pictures, leading into Babylon. The Ishtar Gate. The turquoise, the emerald, the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you on the day that you were prepared, or that you were created. They were prepared. Note that, that Satan, this Lucifer, son of the morning, light bearer, was created. He is a created being. Now, many of you may know that, but, but this is not like God said against Satan. The eternal against the eternal. Eternal good against eternal evil. No. Satan is a created being. Only God is eternal. Only God is almighty. Only God has all power. Satan was created and created by God, and was apparently absolutely breathtaking. Beautiful. You were an anointed cherub, verse 14, who covers. I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. The scripture indicates that before he became Satan, which just means the adversary, before he set himself against God, he was a created being of great angelic beauty, an anointed cherub. He had a role there in heaven. He had authority. He had power. And he had music. He had music. In fact, Isaiah mentions that. He talks about the pomp and the music of your harps. And Ezekiel he talks about that as well in Ezekiel 28.13. The Hebrew for settings and sockets in the New American Standard Translation, settings and sockets is literally timbrels and pipes or tambourines and, and flutes. So for those of you who know that Tom does not want a tambourine player on the worship team, that's why. <laughs> your tambourines, your flutes, your timbrels, your pipes. There are some who have gone so far as to say Lucifer embodied music. So beautiful was he, so remarkable and so filled with, with sound that he literally just emanated music in the heavenly places that he was perhaps heaven's worship leader. He knew how to play. He knew how to evoke emotion. He knew how to work the songs. And is it any wonder that music, for all its beauty and good, is the soundtrack for so many wasted and devastated lives? Just yesterday, jazz, blues, R&B singer Etta James died. She died at the age of 73 of leukemia. She was best known for her 1961 hit, At Last. Some of you have heard the song, At Last. It's been replayed many times by many people. Her version is the best. Anna James was a remarkable performer and singer, and she had a lifelong addiction to heroin. She fought drugs her whole entire life. She had wasted, wasted years. A crippling addiction. And I saw that and I thought, how many, how many pop stars... And musicians and singers end up with their lives completely wasted. Why is that? I love music. Music makes me happy. 
I enjoy singing. I love playing the guitar. I dig playing the drums. It's fun. It's joyful. How come it's so destructive? And the answer is because Satan has his hands on the strings. Because the devil is involved in this thing. I, I only watched for about five minutes yesterday. And I was sitting there on the couch and I was flipping channels and I went to, to VH1 because I always like to watch when they have like a behind the music or thing. And, and they're running this thing called the, uh, it's like the history of heavy metal. I know you all love heavy metal. <laughs> so I'm just watching this. I'm just curious about musicians and their lives and what happens with them. And it was talking about shock rock and shock metal. It started going into these bands and these musicians, Slipknot. Scary, scary band. Uh, Marilyn Manson. Talked about how he was at, you know, at the height of his heyday until the Columbine massacre happened. And it was connected to his music and the guys who carried out the shooting, the, the, the students who did that were big fans of Marilyn Manson. So he was blamed. He was like, I don't know why they're blaming me. <laughs> Satan has a hold of this stuff. Satan has his hands on it. Why is there always problems in churches with worship teams? Now, not here. <laughs> but why is it? Satan takes music. It is, it is emotional. It's been said that music opens up the mind so that other things can come in. And so you may say, as I used to say when I was a teenager to my mom and dad, I don't listen to the words, I just like the music. Wrong. You're fooling yourself. You're kidding yourself. If you think that you can just set the words aside because what's happening, and Satan knows this, is the mind's opening up. You're grooving to the tunes and the words are coming right in. And it does affect you. And he knows it does. And again, look at the stars. So-called. They all fall. All of them. I mean, without exception. They fall apart. Even the Christian stars have a tendency to fall. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus comes to bring life. Satan comes to destroy. And anything he has his hands on will end up with destruction. Now, Isaiah says, looking back there, Isaiah says he was cut down to earth. Okay, when did that happen? When was he cut down to earth? I suggest that it happened before, actually between creation. Let me say that again. I suggest to you, I'm not saying this is fact or doctrine, I, I just I think personally that Satan was cast out of heaven, that he fell between creations. Turn to Genesis chapter 1, I'll show you what I mean. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Now, the book of Genesis, I know, is a difficult book to find. I'm going to want to go all the way back to the beginning. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word created there, I love the word bara. Bara, which is different than borrow. You see, that's all we can do. All we can do is borrow. The things that we so-called create, we borrow what's already been made. And we make something else out of it. Bara in the Hebrew means to make something from nothing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Something from nothing. There was nothing. How did He do it? He's God. And He created matter. He created substance. He created something from nothing. Marvelous. But verse 2 goes on and says, The earth was formless and void. 
and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Now, wait a minute. God created something from nothing, verse 1. And suddenly in verse 2, but there was... It was void and formless. Now, in the English, that might not bother you. You might think, well, he created this stuff, this void, formless, shapeless mass, and then he started to work it into other things. I don't think that's what we're talking about here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. The Hebrew construction in verse 2 is critical to understanding what's going on here. There are two words or catchphrases that you need to know. The first word is was. Was. The earth was formless and void. The word was there is hayah in the Hebrew. Hayah! (laughs) Which, Which also translates, listen, became. It translates became. The earth became formless and void. Now something to push that point a little further. The phrase formless and void is a very specific Hebrew phrase. Some of you may remember this from our Genesis study eight and a half years ago. Tohu vabohu. Tohu vabohu. Which I think would be a great name for like a thrasher band. Tohu vabohu. Formless and void. Literally a desolate waste. A vain, empty, or messed up thing. Read that way, understand this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth became tohu vabohu, messed up. Empty, a wasteland, a void. Now, that might not be a problem, except you've got to ask the question, did God create a wasteland? Does God create a desolation? Does God create a chaos? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 14.33, God is not a God of confusion. This is not how He does things. He doesn't create a waste, which is good to know in our lives that He doesn't create garbage, that He does not create a waste. Your life, if you exist here on this planet, raise your hand if you exist. Let's just see. (laughs) If you exist on the planet, you exist because God chose for you to have life. He gave it to you. Your life does not have to be a waste. He didn't intend for it to be that way. But listen to this. Isaiah pops the cork off this bottle of understanding. Isaiah 45, verse 18. He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place. He did not create it literally tohu vabohu. Genesis chapter 2 says the earth was Tohu vabohu. Isaiah said God did not create the world. Tohu vabohu. What does that tell us? Isaiah says the Lord created it. He formed it to be inhabited. God did not create a chaos. He did not create a void, formless thing. So why does the Genesis record say the earth was this way? Now we can't know for certain unless we were there. Which I don't think anybody was. Any of us. But here's what I would suggest. Verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, the earth became void and messed up and desolate. And I think Satan fell between verses 1 and verse 2. I think that God created, Satan fell and destroyed and messed up and made desolate. And that really what we may be looking at in Genesis 1 and 2 is the recreation of the world. 
which kind of fits with God's character. Now again, you may disagree with me, that's fine, you can go home and struggle through this and look at what Isaiah says, look at what Genesis says and say Rick is off his nut, that's fine. But what does God love to do? He loves to take things that are messed up and restore them. As He's done with so many of our lives. He takes the things that He created to be wonderful, each and every one of us. He created us for His kingdom. He created us to be eternal. He created us to be in a love relationship with us, with Him. He starts us off that way, and we become messed up. Sin enters the picture. Satan enters with his schemes. And we become tohu vabohu until we are redeemed. Until we're restored. Satan launches his rebellion. Jesus then calls him, John 12.31, the ruler of this world. 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul called him the God of this world who has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God, the lampstand. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, the prince of the power of the air he is called. The spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. He tried to raise himself above God. He was booted out of heaven, taking a third of the angels with him. And suddenly, creation became messed up, void, wiped out. And, by the way, this would explain several things. It would explain, first off, how the earth became formless and void in the first place. It would explain why there was darkness over the face of the deep and not light, and why perhaps the Spirit was brooding over the surface of the waters. What's that about? It also would explain how Satan got into the Garden of Eden in the first place to tempt Adam and Eve, and to start this whole ball of sin rolling. Genesis 1, 3 and following, again, may well be the account of recreation. Bottom line, God loves to restore. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, back to the enemy. Because the light bearer himself, his name meaning light bearer, went absolutely dark. He is at the heart of rebellion. If you see rebellion in your kids, if you see rebellion in other people, if you see rebellion or experience it in your own heart, guess what? Satan is behind it. This is what he does. He sets himself against. It is ground deep in his nature. And by the way, we see it all over us today. All around us, we see this rebellion. Did you see the commercial during the football game last week? The last last game for... um, Tebow, thank you. Focus on the Family had a, had a commercial on. I don't know if you all saw it. It's a great commercial. You need to see it on YouTube if you haven't seen it. It's just kids. Bunches of kids, and they are speaking John 3.16. They just go through it, and they speak it, For God so loved the world, and it's, it's, it's adorable. And it's powerful. And they go through the whole thing. He gave His only begotten Son, and whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And you know what? That commercial has become a controversy. People were upset by it. How dare you talk about something that is so exclusive? Let me just ask you, listen to the verse again, and you tell me, is this exclusive? Does this, you know, keep people out? For God so loved the world. 
if that's explode, okay, he didn't love Mars. I'm sorry. You know, I apologize to all the Venetians out there. Unbelievable. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. There is no more inclusive offer that has ever been given. God saying to the entire planet and everybody alive, I love you enough to die for you even before you choose me. That's the deal. And that's what our Father does, but there is so much rebellion in the world and only rebellion can reject that kind of inclusiveness. Satan began in power. Secondly, he continued in pride. Pride. He sought the highest height. He bore a great light, but now he sought the highest height. Again in Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 17. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you. And I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. Watch this. You have become terrified and you will cease to be forever. Isaiah says, back over in Isaiah 14, verse 13, describing Satan, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God or the angels of God is the indication. I will sit on the amount, on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. I will. These are the five I wills of Satan. His determination. This is his game plan, or at least it was. To make himself, I will do this, I will do this. And the height Satan fell from was the height of his own pride. And gang, it's the mantra of our world. I will. I will. I will overcome. I will. Self-love. Self-confidence. Self-assurance. These are the things taught in our schools. These are the things taught in uh, many of our churches. The things taught in the public square. I will. You can. We shall. And that's not what Scripture teaches. It's not the almighty me. Pride goes before destruction, Proverbs 16.18, and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Self-love doesn't help me, it takes me down. Self-confidence, self-assurance, these are not good things unless the self is absolutely in love with Jesus Christ. Then the self is a whole new creation. Because in the life of a new creation, it's not about the new creation, it's about the creator of the new creation. And her eyes become fixed on Jesus. Let me ask you a question. How many here want to be godly? Just a show of hands. How many want to be godly? That's that's good. Be careful with that. (laughs) That was truly not a trick question. Because we are called to be a godly people. But be careful. The very first temptation that Satan offered to Eve was godliness. You will be like the Most High. What was it that Satan wanted? I will make myself like the Most High. I will be godly. Now, his intention was to replace God. 
to become God. Eve was lured into this thing by the very heart of Satan himself saying, do you want to be like God? And you ask any group of Christians, do you want to be like God? And we say, well, yeah, I want to be godly. Of course I do. Be careful that the reason, that the motivation behind it doesn't get twisted by the enemy. Satan wanted the glory, the grandeur, the position, the acclamation, and the prominence. Ask yourself this question. Why do I want to be godly? What's behind it? Do I want to be seen as godly here in the fellowship? Oh, there goes Rick. He's a godly man. (laughs) Is that my desire? Is it to look good in front of other believers of the church? Is it to set myself against the evil of the world as a glorious lampstand? Look at me. I want to be godly. Is it to be honored and appreciated and loved by people? If that's the reason for being godly, that's going to take you down. Just as it did Satan. Galatians 1.10, my favorite, one of my favorite verses. Am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. I'm His bondservant. Guess what? Pastor Rick doesn't work for you. I tell myself that from time to time just to remind myself. It makes me feel good. I don't work for these people. (laughs) I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. I show up here. I involve myself in your lives and you in mine for His sake, not for mine. Not for yours, for His. We are His bondservants. And we who are called to bear the light of the lampstand in the world today can only do it if we're following Jesus. He is the light. But if we're really like Him, listen, if we're really like Him, if you really want to be godly by Jesus' definition, it means you will be forgotten. It means you'll be laughed off. It means you will not be taken seriously. It means you'll be rejected, despised, and even crucified in some cases. You see, that's godliness as defined by Jesus. To be left out. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, Paul wrote, 2 Timothy 3.12. That's the standard Jesus laid out for us. So when we pray, Lord, make me like Jesus. Lord, I want to be more godly. Recognize what it is that we're asking for. Isaiah 53, verse 3, He was despised. He was forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face, He was despised, and we did not esteem Him. I mean, it blows out of the water, this this whole attitude. Oh, Lord, I'm trying so hard for you, but everybody's rejecting me. Jesus says, if that's happening, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. That you are counted worthy to suffer like I did? To be persecuted like the prophets were? Yes. If people are rejecting you, you're doing the right thing. Satan bore a great light. He sought the highest height. He went from power to pride. Jesus, on the other hand, who is the light of the world, chose to come down. He was not cast out. He chose to come down from the very highest height. And He came even into this darkness where He became the most humbled among all people. That's the power of the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Is that He who was greatest became the lowest that you and I might be lifted up. 
What a story. What a life-altering event. 2 Corinthians 4.7, and this tells us something about the light of the lampstand. We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Let's make sure we get that down. The power here is not from me. The power is not from you. Anything accomplished is not from us. It is from God. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed. Perplexed but not despairing. Persecuted but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed. Always carrying around in the body the dying of Jesus so the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. You know what I want to have said about the British Christian Fellowship? Wow, the life of Jesus is in that place. Those people are alive in Jesus. They just can't get enough Jesus. They are filled up with Jesus and His life. Yes. The lampstand, that light that we have been talking about, is proof positive, gang, that the light and the power within us is never from us. It's His light that emanates from me. And Paul even put it this way, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 4, My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Satan, on the other hand, claims all his power is his own. He who went from power to pride will go to, number three and last one, punishment. He will go to punishment. He will be stripped of all his might. Look at verse 15, Isaiah chapter 14. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you, and they will ponder over you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble? Who shook kingdoms? Who made the world like a wilderness? Who overthrew its cities? Who did not allow his prisoners to go home? Right now, that's exactly what he's doing. That description. He is making the earth tremble. Satan is shaking kingdoms with sin. He's wasting the planet. The environmentalists would say, it's man that's wasting the planet. No, it's Satan that's wasting the planet. He is, uh, he's overthrowing cities. Almost said occupying, and avoid that one. And tragically, he's taking as many prisoners as he can. Note that last line, who did not allow his prisoners to go home. Are you imprisoned? Is there something going on in your life that is holding you from being able to walk in the light? Do you feel yourself constrained by habits or, or addictions or fears? Listen, this is why Jesus came. Satan who would imprison you, Jesus came to set you free now and forever. A freedom that we are called to walk in. In fact, Isaiah 61 verse 1 tells us, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, Jesus speaking these words. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. And if you are feeling imprisoned or held captive by a habit or a fear or some kind of thing going on in your life, you need Jesus. Because He is the one who breaks you free. He is the answer to release from those things that would hold us captive. 
That's why He came. Satan's taking prisoners now because he knows he's headed for hell. So he's going to take as many prisoners as he possibly can. By the way, did you know he's not the king of hell? All the jokes are wrong. You know, all the cartoons that talk about, you know, you go to hell and there's Satan with his little book. And, oh, I got you. He's not in charge. He's not the boss. He's not even currently in hell right now. He's roaming the world. But the place that Jesus said was prepared for the devil and his, and his angels, hell, he's not the king of hell. He's going down and on arrival, the Bible tells us, he will be the subject of all ridicule. He will be brought down to the very lowest place. Ezekiel 28.19 All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified and you will cease to be forever. The terrorist is now terrified. That's where he's headed. The tempter is now going to be tormented. The roaring lion will have his pride demeaned forever. (laughs) Lion and his pride. (laughs) So much for the king of Babylon. A lot of information. What do we do with this? Turn over to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. While you're turning there, understand, Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 11, No advantage should be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. And that's the main idea right here. We are not to be ignorant of his schemes. We're not to study Satan to be interested in Satan. We're to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. But we are also not to be ignorant of his schemes. We should know how he functions. We should know what his drive, his desire, his purpose is. His purpose is power and pride. These are the things in which he functions. These are the things that he calls us to. And he does it in the church too. Power and pride. If he can get a pastor to be interested in power... If he can fill up leaders with pride, ministries with pride, this is how he functions. But understand that we are not to be ignorant of his schemes, and that's just it. Schemes are all he has on you. Jesus said in John 8.44, whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. And one of the lies that I think he propagates most, especially among believers, is how much power he actually has. You know how much power he has against believers in Jesus Christ? None. Zip. He has schemes. He has lies. He has deception. But he has no power over you. No power over me. He can't take away eternal life from you. He can't do that. He can't void a redeemed heart. He has no power over you. All he can do is lie and scheme and accuse. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. He's the accuser. He's powerless right now to conquer the saints of Christ. He can accuse you. He will try to guilt trip you. He will threaten you. He will try to intimidate you. But if you want to send him running, there's one very simple thing to do. If you want to see Satan flee from your presence, resist him. James chapter 4, verse 7, Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Do you think James was kidding? Resist him. 
He'll run away. He cannot handle godly resistance. Jesus resisted. Remember that? And Satan left. Jesus resisted. Jesus kept quoting Deuteronomy to the devil. I love the passage. Three times he's tempted. Three times he responds with Scripture. And Satan finally leaves. Luke tells us for a more opportune time. Now someone might say, okay, that's my problem. That's what worries me. I resist him now, but he's coming back. I resist him again, but I know he's going to hit me a third time, or a fourth time, or a fifth time. I know he keeps coming around. Read verse 11. Revelation 12, 11. And they overcame him. How? Three ways. Because of the blood of the Lamb, because of the word of their testimony, And number three, they did not love their life even when faced with death. Three ways to overcome Satan and we're done. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb. I was reminded of this this morning by Les. We were praying in the back and he he prayed this verse and I remembered. Oh, I I gotta say this. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus sent out 70 people on a mission. Luke chapter 10. They all went out and He gave them power to cast out demons and to do great things. And they come back and they are just puffed up. I mean, can you imagine being sent out by Jesus to come back going, we rock. It was amazing. We were driving out demons right and left. We're like, come out. And they came out. It was awesome. And Jesus said this, Luke chapter 10, verse 20, Do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in the Lamb's book of life. Rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. That's the deal. That's our great rejoicing. We have overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Not by our own righteous deeds or the things that we've accomplished. By the blood of the Lamb. At Calvary, that prowling lion was detoothed and declawed. And he cannot get to you. He can only scheme. In fact, at Calvary, Jesus did more than just kick his teeth in. He crushed the serpent's head. Just as the prophecy back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 tells us, you will crush his head. And Jesus did. Colossians 2.15 says he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Have you ever tried to have a fist fight with an armless person? What are they going to do? Throw an elbow? They don't even have that. Throw a shoulder? Have you seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail? <laughs> guy's arms are cut off and he's like, come back or I'll bite you in the kneecap, you know? <laughs> I cut your arm off. It's a flesh wound. You know, it's just... He disarmed the authorities. They cannot get a hold of you anymore. Hallelujah. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace which He lavished on us. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb. We overcome by the word of our testimony. What's that, the Bible, Rick? No. The word of your testimony is the word, gang. It's your witness of His grace in your life. The word of my testimony. It's how Jesus saved me. That's... That's my word. That's what I keep bringing. That's what I keep sharing. That's what I tell people. And those who say, I can't be an evangelist because I just don't know enough Scripture. Well, A, learn more. And B, tell your story. Why do you believe in Jesus? What did He do? How did He change you? The word of your testimony. And by the way, my testimony is not supposed to be how bad I was. My testimony is supposed to be how good God's grace is. 
That's what I share. By grace you have been saved, Ephesians 2.8, through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one may boast. So we overcome by the blood of the Lamb. We overcome by the word of our testimony. And we overcome by not loving our lives. Now that is so contrary to the teaching of the world. Love yourself. The greatest love of all. It's easy to believe. I mean, come on. Whitney, whatever. The greatest love of all is the love of Jesus Christ poured out on my heart. That's the greatest love. And we overcome not by loving our lives, but by loving Him who has hold of my life. Man, woman, forget about yourself. Just forget about yourself. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And that is how we let our light shine for Jesus in this world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, you are so good. And it is wonderful, Lord, to be able to recognize that we have an enemy, that there is an adversary. To see all the darkness and devastation and the scheming that he has in this world and yet to not be afraid. How glorious it is that we can even talk about the wiles of Satan with the joy of Jesus in our hearts. And I pray this over our fellowship, Father, that we will not be uh, led by schemes, that we will not accept the lies and the deceit, that we will not be tempted. Lead us not into temptation, Father, but deliver us from evil, just as Jesus prayed. Now, Father, it's a great joy for those who believe in Jesus who follow after you, but there are so many who don't. And so many who right now, Lord, are are lost, they're deceived, they're confused. Perhaps even in this barn this morning, there are some who have never given their lives to Christ. Lord, would you convict an imprisoned heart that your only desire is to set free and to bring us into a loving relationship with Jesus. Holy Spirit, do your work among us. Use us. As lampstands, fathers, we talked about last week, we're just lampstands. We're not the oil. We're not the burning flame. We're not the light. That is your Spirit. Holy Spirit, be in us and upon us that we can face up to the darkness of this world with the light of the glory of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen.